Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hi everyone, it's Natalie Gruniger here from On The Tudor Trail. A big thank you to Heather from the Renaissance English History Podcast for inviting me to take part in this year's Tudor Summit. I'm delighted and honoured to be speaking alongside so many wonderful and talented speakers. A little background information. Um, for as long as I can remember, I've been fascinated by the past and by stories of people who've walked this earth before me. For the last eight years, I've avidly pursued this passion for history and dedicated many hours and much energy to researching and writing about the Tudors through the lens of the great houses, palaces and castles where their tantalising stories unfurled. This love of learning history on the very stage where it played out led me to create in 2009 on the Tudor Trail, a website dedicated to documenting historic sites associated with Anne Boleyn and sharing information about prominent Tudor personalities and daily life in 16th century England. In 2013, my debut book, In the Footsteps of Anne Boleyn, co-authored with Sarah Morris, was published in the UK, followed by In the Footsteps of the Six Wives of Henry VIII in March 2016. Another collaboration, that was also another collaboration between Sarah and myself. Why the fascination with places? Well, these sites are the keepers of history, the guardians of stories whose protagonists have long returned to dust. They are portals, I think, between our world and theirs. Through reading, we can come to know the Tudors intellectually. We can learn about the larger-than-life personalities, the politics and great personal dramas that so captivate us, and spend hours poring over their personal correspondence, state papers and portraits. But when we stand where the Tudors once stood and see what they saw, when only time separates us from them, our connection deepens. Suddenly they step out from the pages of history books and become living, breathing people once more. In May of this year, my third book, Colouring History, the Tudors, was released in the UK. I'll show you the book. There we go. Um... It's a Tudor-themed colouring book for grown-ups, illustrated by my dear friend and very talented illustrator, Catherine Holman. Um, and just a few weeks ago, very exciting, my fourth Tudor book, Discovering Tudor London, A Journey Back in Time, was published by the History Press. The latest book, this one, is a curated guide to what I consider the best of Tudor London and features both buildings associated with that or associated with or built by the Tudors, and the galleries and museums that house treasures from this period of history. Because just as places can transport us back in time and connect us to people and events from long ago, so too can things. They can be powerful conduits of moments. Also included in my book are four suggested itineraries of varying lengths, covering sites in London and Greater London. The one exception to this rule is the inclusion of Hampton Court Palace. In Surrey. This is an exceptional Tudor time capsule and more survives of Hampton Court than of any other Tudor palace and so I felt compelled to include it in my book. There are 32 main locations covered and they're organised into the following sections, house halls, palaces and castles, churches and religious houses and museums and galleries. An extensive range of illustrations including photographs and paintings and a Tudor timeline accompany the text. I'm so excited to be speaking to you today about four exceptional locations featured in my guidebook. They are Hampton Court Palace, 
Sutton House, the Tower of London, and the Victoria and Albert Museum. I'm also very happy to share that I have a copy of Colouring History and Discovering Tudor London to give away. So just leave a comment after this talk telling me which book you'd like to win and why, and we'll go from there. So are you ready to journey back in time? Oh, I should also add that what follows are largely extracts from my book. Okay, let's begin with what I consider a must-see for the Tudor time traveller, Hampton Court. Within the russet-coloured walls of Hampton Court Palace, the past emerges from behind a veil of time. The sights, sounds and smells evoking memories of an era when this building thrummed with intrigue and power as the epicentre of politics in the Tudor Royal Court. For the Tudor time traveller, this is the holy grail of locations. For all the Tudor kings and queens and prominent personalities of the day have crossed the threshold of Hampton Court Palace, where perhaps their footsteps echo yet. The palace we, we see today is sprawling and magnificent, but it is not all Tudor. At the end of the 17th century, William III and Mary II commissioned Sir Christopher Wren to rebuild Hampton Court. The intention was to demolish all the buildings with the exception of the Great Hall. However, thankfully, both money and time proved scarce and only part of their ambitious plan was realised. Wren replaced the Tudor Royal Apartments with a new Baroque palace, completely transforming the south and east facades of Hampton Court and also re-landscaped the former gardens. In an ironic twist of fate, neither William nor Mary lived to enjoy their elegant new lodgings. Mary died in 1694 after contracting smallpox, and in March 1702, William died at Kensington Palace. Although he sustained injuries, including a broken collarbone in a riding accident at Hampton Court, which, we, um, which is also known as Home Park, just two weeks before his death, it's generally agreed among historians that he died from pneumonia. The 18th century saw the completion of the Queen's apartments, begun by Wren, and the addition of the Queen's staircase by William Kent. Not long after, in 1737, the royal family, George II and Queen Caroline, accompanied by the court, stayed at the palace for the final time. From 1760 onwards, Hampton Court Palace was divided into grace and favour apartments and opened to the public under Queen Victoria. Despite the changes made over the years to the original fabric of the buildings, more survives of Hampton Court than of any other Tudor palace, making this a must-see destination for those on the Trail of the Tudors. In January 1515, Thomas Wolsey, the newly appointed Archbishop of York and soon to be Lord Chancellor, took a 99-year lease on Hampton Court from the Knights Hospitallers of St John of Jerusalem, who'd first acquired the manor in 1236. Wolsey's new house which had previously been in the hands of Henry VII's Lord Chamberlain, Sir Giles Daubeney, had been extensively rebuilt in the late 15th century and was of a typical late medieval plan, with the majority of the buildings, including a great hall, arranged around a courtyard. Henry VII and Elizabeth of York visited the house not long before the Queen's death in 1503. And so it was evidently spacious and luxurious enough to cater for royalty. It was, however, not grand enough for Cardinal Wolsey, who embarked on a building campaign which would transform Hampton Court into a magnificent double courtyard mansion. He built himself sumptuous new lodgings as well as luxurious new apartments for Henry VIII, Catherine of Aragon and the Princess Mary on the site of the present-day East Range of Clock Court. Wolsey extended Daubeney's kitchens and created new courtyards, residential apartments, galleries and splendid gardens, an ostentatious display of his wealth and power. In 1529, Henry VIII took possession of Hampton Court and continued the work started by the now disgraced Cardinal, making extensive alterations and embellishments to the palace complex, as attested to by the 6,500 pages of work accounts that survive in the public record office. By the time of Henry VIII's death in 1547, Hampton Court was the ultimate royal pleasure palace. Boasting magical gardens, a vast hunting park of around 1,100 acres, tennis courts, bowling alleys, and a permanent tilt yard. It was a palace built to impress and dazzle his subjects and visitors, a spectacular manifestation of Tudor royal power and magnificence. Let's take now a little walk back in time. The main entrance to the palace today is via the west front through Wolsey's Great Gatehouse, 
reduced in height in the 18th century from five to three storeys. Pause for a moment on the moat bridge while facing the central gateway surmounted with the arms of Henry VIII. The turrets you see were originally crowned with lead onion domes, as seen in Antonis van den Wingard's view of the palace from the north made in around 1558. The two terracotta roundels of the heads of the Roman emperors, Tiberius and Nero, are Victorian additions, but were probably originally from the Holbein Gate at Whitehall. The ten heraldic beasts which lined the bridge leading to the central gateway were installed in 1911 to replace the original Tudor beast destroyed in the reign of King William III. Unlike their Tudor predecessors, the beasts we see today are unpainted. Among them, the crown lion of England supporting a shield bearing the impaled arms of Henry VIII and Jane Seymour, the greyhound, a favoured Tudor beast, and a symbol of loyalty and celerity and the mighty Tudor dragon. When standing facing Wolsey's gatehouse, the range you see projecting out to the right once contained the common jakes, later known as the Great House of Easement, a multiple garter robe, which um, sorry, a multiple garter robe which originally emptied into the moat. The range to your left was the back gate, which allowed access to the main kitchen buildings and contained, among other things, office, among other offices and lodgings, the counting house, which was the administrative hub of the royal household. Make your way into base court and prepare to be propelled back into the 16th century. This area of the palace remains much as it was when Wolsey built it to provide luxury accommodation for a large number of guests. The north and south ranges contained in total 32 room suites and three single lodgings, all accessed via an internal gallery that wrapped around the three sides of the courtyard. This revolutionary design allowed guests to move between rooms without being impacted by the weather. A large three-room suite was located over the gatehouse. Each of the guest rooms contained a garter robe and fireplace, and those in the north, south, in the north and south ranges contained ample windows that overlooked the gardens. Apart from being spacious and well-lit, they were also very richly furnished and well-stocked, as we hear in George Cavendish's very detailed description of the arrival of a French embassy to Hampton Court in 1527, recorded in his biography of Cardinal Wolsey. And I quote, They returned again to Hampton Court, and every of them conveyed to his chamber, severally having in them great fires and wine ready to refresh them remaining there until their supper was ready and the chambers where they should sup were ordered in due form. And whilst they were in conversation and other pastimes, all their liveries were served to their chamber. Every chamber had a basin and a ewer of silver, some clean gilt and some parcel gilt, and some two great pots of silver in like manner, and one pot, the, one pot at the least with wine and beer, a bowl or goblet and a silver pot to drink beer, a silver candlestick or two, both with white lights and yellow lights of three sizes of wax, and a staff torch, a fine manchette and a sheet loaf of bread. Thus was every chamber furnished throughout the house. Sounds good. The centrepiece of the courtyard today is the four metre high recreated Tudor wine fountain that was unveiled in April 2010 and inspired by a number of historic sources, including the Field of Cloth of Gold painting created in the 1540s and displayed in the Young Henry VIII exhibition at the palace. In its heyday, Hampton Court was home to a number of fountains, also known as conduits, including one that stood in Base Court, and a larger and more elaborate one in Clock Court. Baron Waldstein described the latter in his diary after a visit to Hampton Court in the summer of 1600. Um, and I quote, this quadrangle, uh, that is Clock Court, is paved with squared stone and in the centre there is a fountain with a golden crown around the top of it. Above this stands a gilt figure of justice. The fountain spurts its water out of marble columns. Apart from water, on special occasions such as the coronation of a new monarch, the conduits also ran with wine, something the present fountain is also engineered to do. Let's now move on to the Great Hall. As you make your way towards the Great Hall, take note of the fan vault beneath the middle gate, today known as Anne Boleyn's Gateway. It's decorated with the entwined initials of Henry VIII and Anne Boleyn. The gatehouse was heavily restored in the late 19th century, and while the ceiling dates to this period, is a close copy of the original Tudor vaulting. Pause for a moment at the top of the staircase, the site of the processional stair in Tudor times, and take note of Catherine of Aragon's personal badge, the pomegranates, 
which decorate the doorway leading into the buttery. Make your way into the grand and beautiful great hall begun by Henry VIII in 1532. It's the largest room in the palace, measuring around 32 metres long, 12 metres wide and over 18 metres high. As the entrance to Henry's state apartments, it needed to be suitably impressive and magnificent, hence the splendid and richly decorated hammer beam roof, which in Tudor times would have been brightly painted. At the lower end of the hall, the Tudor oak screen carved with the entwined initials of Henry and Anne Boleyn, which can also be seen on the ceiling, separates the hall from the buttery and would have originally supported a minstrel's gallery. Rather than the timber floor we see today, the hall was originally paved with tiles and a stone hearth stood in the centre of the room, the smoke escaping through a lavishly decorated louvre above. The beautiful Flemish tapestries of the story of Abraham that today line the walls were commissioned by Henry VIII and woven by William Kempany in the 1540s with silver and gold thread. Time has dulled the tapestries, but it's still possible to get a sense of how striking and vibrant they would have been when first produced. The Great Chamber, remodelled by Henry VIII in the mid-1530s, was the outermost chamber of Henry's state apartments a function occasionally served by the Great Hall, and as such was a room in which courtiers could gather with relative freedom. It came under the control of the Lord Chamberlain, whose department was also responsible for supervising the Great Hall and Presence Chamber. During Henry's reign, the Great Chamber also served as a dining room for courtiers above the rank of the Baron, and according to Simon Thurley, it was where almost all the normal intercourse of the, of the court took place. It's likely that it was to this room that Sir Thomas Risley summons Catherine Howard's household on the 13th of November 1541 before dismissing them and ordering the young queen's removal from Hampton Court to house arrest at Siam House. The door directly to your right as you enter the room from the hall roughly marks the side of the entryway to Henry's presence chamber and state apartments which no longer exist. The king's yeomen of the guard dressed in red uniforms and armed with long pikes would have guarded the door around the clock and only permitted entry to those with the proper authority. Beyond the presence chamber stood a succession of private rooms, including the privy and withdrawing chambers, which came under the control of the groom of the stool. The garter robe created from the king's yeoman who slept in the great chamber at night still survives. While the room today owes much of its appearance to later restorations, the beautiful ceiling decorated with the arms of Henry VIII and Jane Seymour, and the tapestries date to the 16th century. The horn room was originally where servants waited before taking food into the great hall and great watching chamber. The staircase leads up from the kitchens, and while the balustrade is Victorian, the original and well-worn Tudor oak steps survive. The room acquired its name when the palace was partially rebuilt during the reign of William III, at which time the antlers and horns that had previously decorated the Tudor galleries were taken down and stored here. No doubt you will notice the life-size portrait of a porter who served Elizabeth I, which hangs on the wall. I'm sure you'll be just amazed as, as I was by his enormous stature. Now to the council chamber, haunted gallery and chapel royal. As you leave the great watching chamber and follow the great processional route that led from the King's state apartments to the magnificent double-story chapel, note the pages chamber on your right furnished as it may have appeared in the 1540s. Take your time admiring the many Tudor portraits which decorate the gallery, including a wonderful portrait by an unknown artist of a young boy looking out from behind a window, painted between 1550 and 1560. Dressed in plain dark clothes, a velvet cap and ruff, the boy stares cheekily out at you from behind a casement, his right finger tapping on the glass, enticing you to engage with him. His left hand is poised on the window's ledge and appears ready to throw the window open. As you look at him and try to imagine what those mischievous eyes saw, it dawns on you, on you that you've become the subject of observation rather than the observer. Very clever portrait. Continue along the gallery towards the council chamber built by Henry VIII in circa 1529 and open to the public for the first time in 2009. Between 1540 and 1547, there were around 19 privy councillors, rising to around 50 during the reign of Mary I. These councillors met virtually every day to, uh, to advise the king on anything from foreign policy to the day-to-day -day running of the court, and would have done so in this very room whilst in residence at Hampton Court. 
just imagine the heated debates that would have taken place here and all the historic decisions made within these walls. The second half of the gallery is known traditionally as the Haunted Gallery, as it's said to be home to Catherine Howard's screaming spectre. Legend has it that after Henry learned of his young wife's premarital sexual liaisons and had her confined to her apartments, she broke free from her captors and knowing that the king was at prayer in the chapel, ran down the corridor in a final desperate attempt to reach her husband and plead for mercy. She was, however, quickly restrained and dragged back to her apartments in a frenzy of terror and was executed at the Tower of London on the 13th of February 1542. Her ghost is said to replay this final frantic dash with many guests and staff alike reporting strange goings-on in this area of the palace. Over the years, people have reported a sense of uneasiness and dread in the gallery. Others have heard eerie screams, and some visitors have become dizzy, disoriented, and on occasions, even fainted. One man contacted me personally to share his story of being grabbed around the neck by spectral hands. As much as I love a good ghost story, there is no documentary evidence to confirm that the event ever took place. In fact, it seems likely that Catherine Howard knew nothing of the predicament she was in until the King had departed Hampton Court, only then ordering her confinement. Even so, there is an undeniable atmosphere of mystery in this gallery. Spooky stories aside, the Haunted Gallery is also home to paintings from the Royal Collection including portraits of Henry VII and Elizabeth of York and the, fan, and the family of Henry VIII, made in circa 1545 by an unknown artist. The painting is set at Whitehall Palace and shows Henry with his third wife, Jane Seymour, who died at Hampton Court in 1537, and his children, Mary, Elizabeth and Edward. Adorning the neck of the young Elizabeth is an A necklace, which may have belonged to her mother, Anne Boleyn. From the haunted gallery, visitors can access the royal pew, the upper story of the exquisite chapel royal built by Cardinal Wolsey and modernised by Henry VIII. This overlooks the main body of the chapel. Excuse me. From 1535 onwards, the pew was divided into two large rooms known as the Queen's Holy Day Closet and the King's Holy Day Closet, where the King and Queen worshipped separately on Sundays and feast days, hence the name Holy Day. On the Feast of Epiphany, on the 6th of January, the king would wear his crown and robes and process to the chapel to hear mass. The original crown does not survive, however, a very good replica is currently on display in the royal pew. At all other times, the king worshipped privately in his privy closet, located between his presence and privy chambers. On the 15th of October, 1537, Henry and Jane Seymour's son, Prince Edward, was baptised in, in the chapel. Tragically, less than two weeks later, his mother died following postnatal complications and celebrations quickly turned to mourning. Henry ordered that James's, James' heart and entrails be buried in the chapel, where her body lay in state before being moved to St George's Chapel, Windsor Castle, where she was buried on the 12th of November 1537, just one month after having given birth to Henry's longed-for heir. In July 1543, Henry married his sixth and final wife, Catherine Parr, in the Queen's Privy Closet at Hampton Court, in the presence of around 20 guests, including his daughters, Mary and Elizabeth. A copy of their wedding certificate is on display in the Holy Day Closet. Let's proceed now to the Cumberland Art Gallery and the Wolsey Closet. The Art Gallery is housed in the newly restored Cumberland Suite, designed by the eminent English architect William Kent for George II's son, William Augustus, the Duke of Cumberland and completed by about 1734. On display are some magnificent artworks, principally from the Royal Collection, including masterpieces by Holbein, Van Dyck and Rembrandt. As you admire the work of these renowned artists, keep in mind that the Cumberland Suite was built on the site of the first Tudor State Apartments, originally constructed by Wolsey to house the Princess Mary on the ground floor, Henry on the middle floor, on the first floor, sorry, and Queen Catherine directly above him. Think back to that closed door that I mentioned at the far end of the Great Watching Chamber. This once led into Henry's presence chamber, now greatly altered and inaccessible to the public, and then on to the King's most private rooms, including his dining and privy chamber. Henry later refurbished these lodgings and ordered that lavish new rooms be built for his second wife, Anne Boleyn, overlooking a sweeping parkland to the east. However, these were not completed until early 1536, and so Anne would have stayed in the old Queen's rooms designed for her predecessor, 
while awaiting their completion. She unfortunately was executed in May 1536 before ever getting a chance to enjoy her sumptuous new apartments. The flurry of construction work kept Henry and his new wife Jane Seymour away from Hampton Court until May 1537, at which time the bewildered and no doubt exhausted craftsmen were ordered by the king to begin work on rebuilding and extended the newly completed Queen's apartments. Perhaps Queen Jane did not feel comfortable staying in rooms originally designed for her mistress. In any case, Jane too was forced to use the same old lodgings used by Catherine and Anne and, give, and actually gave birth to Prince Edward in one of the rooms on the 12th of October 1537. Jane, though, would never fully recover from Edward's birth, dying just 12 days later. The entrance to the suite of rooms used by Henry's first three queens survives, albeit in a heavily altered state, and is today used as a meeting and training room, and unfortunately not open to the public. A fireplace decorated with Cardinal Wolsey's badges and mottos hints at the room's Tudor past. Before leaving this area of the palace, be sure to visit the Wolsey closet just beyond the Cumberland suite, as it, as it allows a glimpse into what a Tudor closet, also known as just a small room, would have looked like. Although it was heavily restored in the 19th century, part of the gilded wood and leather mache ceiling, which dates to the 1530s and is actually decorated with Tudor rose and the Prince of Wales feathers, has remained in situ. The painted panels date from the 16th century but are not original to the room. The Wolsey rooms form part of Cardinal Wolsey's private apartments in the 1520s and were later refurbished for the Princess Mary. Like so much of the palace, these rooms were altered and restored in the 18th and 19th centuries. However, a number of original Tudor features survive, including 16th century linen fold panelling and Tudor fireplaces. The adjacent Renaissance Picture Gallery and the Wolsey Rooms are home to many wonderful 16th and 17th century paintings, including portraits of Anne Boleyn, Henry VIII and Catherine of Aragon. Now let's take a wander through the Tudor kitchens. The enormous Tudor kitchens at Hampton Court are a highlight of any visit and at various times throughout the year are home to live cookery events where historical chefs bring the 500 year old kitchens to life by preparing traditional Tudor meals in front of a roaring fire. Henry VIII extended the kitchens in around 1530 to cater for the 600 to 800 members of court entitled to eat twice a day in the Great Hall and Great Watching Chamber. In their heyday, they covered around 3,000 square feet and were manned by a staff of 200. In addition to the main household kitchens, there were also the privy kitchens, where the king and queen's own cooks prepared the royal dishes. As a side note, the Privy Kitchen Cafe is housed in what was once Elizabeth I's Privy Kitchen. Today, visitors are free to explore what survives of Henry VIII's great kitchens, including the remains of the Tudor Boiling House, the cellars and Fish Court, which is a narrow courtyard around which once stood a number of different kitchen offices, including the Pastry House, Flesh Larder and Fish Larder. As you exit the kitchens into Serving Place, be sure not to miss the, dress the dresses where special dishes were garnished before being served to senior courtiers. In quiet moments between tourist groups, there is a real sense of timelessness in this area of the palace, particularly in the North Cloister, the passage that leads to the cellars, where it feels possible or somehow inevitable that if you remained there long enough, you would come face to face with a harried Tudor servant en route to deliver food to the courtiers diving upstairs. Hampton Court also boasts over 60 acres of formal gardens and more than 650 acres of historic parkland that is home to a large variety of wildlife, including 300 fallow deer said to be descendants of Henry VIII's original deer herd. Sir Giles d'Aubernay enclosed 300 acres of land in what is now Bushy Park, creating Hampton Court's first hunting park. Cardinal Wolsey, never one to be outdone, followed suit by including, sorry, by enclosing an even larger area of land to the east of the palace, the present-day Hampton Court Park. He was also the first to build ornamental gardens at the palace. However, it was Henry VIII who, from 1529 onwards, established the gardens that would be greatly lauded and praised. One such admirer was Baron Waldstein, whom, after visiting the palace in the summer of 1600, noted, and I quote, this is especially interesting because of its many avenues and also for the large number of growing plants shaped into animals 
In fact, they even had sirens, centaurs, sphinxes, and other fabulous poetic creatures portrayed here in Topiari work. The gardens to the south of the palace comprised of the privy garden, designed to be enjoyed from the ground and from the galleries above. The mount garden, which boasted, among other features, a spectacular arbour, and to the west of the privy garden, the poniard, which contained three ponds that were both ornamental and used for breeding and storing fish. To the north of the palace stood the privy orchard and a great orchard, separated by the palace moat but linked by a drawbridge. The privy orchard was home to a bowling alley, and nearby on the east front of the palace stood an indoor tennis court. Henry later completed the entertainment quarter by building a permanent tilt yard on land adjacent to the great orchard. This layout has over the years been greatly altered to cater for changing tastes in garden design, However, there remain several features of interest to the Tudor time traveller. The sunken pond gardens were the original Tudor ponds, and the knot garden and the gardens in Chapel Court were laid out to show the types of gardens Henry may have planted at Hampton Court. If weather permits, spend some time exploring Hampton Court Park, used for hunting and riding in Tudor times. If, at the end of the day, you're in need of a refreshment, Head for the Tilt Yard Cafe, built adjacent to the only surviving of Henry's five Tilt Yard Towers, constructed as viewing galleries and as banqueting houses. In 1599, Swiss diarist and physician Thomas Platter extolled, and I quote, Hampton Court is the finest and most magnificent royal edifice to be found in England. And I have to say, after more than 400 years, it continues to captivate our hearts and our imaginations. Now, let's travel to the heart of Hackney, to a little-known Tudor gem called Sutton House. Built for the courtier and diplomat Sir Ralph Sadler in around 1535, it is said to be the oldest home in East London. As a protégé of Thomas Cromwell's, Sadler rose in influence and prospered during his mentor's ascendancy. However, unlike Cromwell, who was executed as a traitor and a heretic in 1540, after Henry VIII's death, Sadler went on to serve Edward VI and Elizabeth I and live until his 80th year. How bad for a Tudor. Over the centuries, Sutton House, or Brick Park as it was originally known, has housed a variety of occupants, including wealthy wool and silk merchants, Huguenot families, and 20th century squatters, before being acquired by the National Trust in 1938 and finally opened to the public in 1994. A little about Tudor Hackney. Situated on the edge of the walled city and less than three miles from Bishopsgate, Tudor Hackney was made up of three parishes Hackney, Stoke Newington, and Shoreditch. Unlike the crowded and unwholesome streets of the nearby city, Hackney, with its open fields and pasture land, became a popular location for wealthy Londoners to build their country retreats. The healthful air attracting the likes of Thomas Cromwell, Margaret Douglas, Countess of Lennox, Lucy Somerset, Baroness Latimer, and Henry Percy, the sixth Earl of Northumberland. The latter, who in the early 1520s had been romantically linked with Anne Boleyn, owned a house in Clapton, not far from where Sadler would eventually build his brick mansion. In 1535, Henry VIII acquired this house from Percy and it became known as the King's Place and later Brook House. The King granted the house to Thomas Cromwell later that year, who appears to have largely rebuilt it. Clearly Hackney was seen to have some sort of restorative powers because in May 1537, an ailing Percy wrote to Cromwell asking him, and this is a quote, to help me to the King's House of Hackney, whereby I trust the sooner to recover my health. Unfortunately, the King's House of Hackney did nothing to improve the Earl's weak constitution, and he died there in June 1537. Even so, its reputation as a place for rejuvenation continued well into the following century. Samuel Pepys recorded multiple visits to Hackney to take the air in his 17th century London diary, and in 17, uh, 1720, the historian John Stripe described Hackney as a, this is a quote, pleasant and healthful town where divers nobles in former times had their country seats. At around the same time as Cromwell was rebuilding nearby King's Place, construction began on Sadler's red brick house, which stood on Hamerton Street in the hamlet of Homerton, to the east of the parish of St Augustine. 
The fact that it was known as Brick Place is indicative of how rare brick houses were in Hackney at the time, then just a quiet rural village. Sadler built a three-storey H-plant house with a four-gabled frontage decorated with the fashionable dyke patterning. It comprised two wings separated by a central range with two cellars accessible from the outside. On the ground floor, the central block contained the Great Hall paved with red tiles and flanked by a service wing to the east and a parlour lined with linen fold panelling to the west. The first floor contained the panelled Great Chamber directly above the Great Hall and a bedchamber with its own garderobe. The third floor housed the servants and the children. Many of the rooms boasted carved stone fireplaces and the windows were made of oak with vertical mullions. This was a luxurious house indeed, a reflection of its owner's growing wealth and influence. In 1540, Sadler was knighted and appointed one of the king's two principal secretaries of state. By this time, his Hackney estate of around 30 acres consisted of multiple houses and outbuildings, a dovecot and extensive gardens. To the west of Brick Place stood another house, formerly the Tannery, occupied at the time by Sadler's father, Henry. In 1550, he sold off the majority of the estate to John Michel, a wealthy wool merchant who later became the Sheriff of London. Brick Place remained in the hands of the Michels for the remainder of the 16th century. Not sure if I'm pronouncing that name correct, naturally. It wasn't until the 20th century that Sadler's former house acquired its current name as a result of a widely held but erroneous belief that Thomas Sutton had lived there. In fact, Sutton, the very wealthy founder of Charterhouse Hospital and School, had lived in the old tannery, formerly occupied by Sadler's father. The house was demolished in the early 19th century to make way for a row of Georgian terraces known as Sutton Place. Now, the house that greets visitors today has been greatly altered over the centuries to serve a range of purposes. In the 17th century, it was home to a girls' school, one of several in the village of Hackney at the time. In the middle of the 18th century, the house was divided into two self-contained residences and leased out. A boys' school occupied part of the house in the early 19th century, and by 1895, the two parts of the house had been reunited and the premises became known as St George's, sorry, not St George's, St John's Church Institute, a recreational club for men. Today, the house is cared for by the National Trust and open to the public. While much of the house that Sadler built has been lost or altered, there are some wonderful Tudor treasures left to see, namely in the Linenfold Parlour, the Little Chamber, the Great Chamber and the Tudor Kitchen. The first room that you enter is the Linenfold Parlour. Its finely panelled walls and carved stone fireplace hark back to its Tudor origins provide a sense of how grand and impressive the original house would have been. There's an ineffable sense of timelessness in this room, as though at any moment its Tudor inhabitants might come striding through. It's really not difficult to imagine Sadler conducting business here or sitting by the fire, quietly discussing the goings-on of Henry's court. The time of writing this room also housed a wonderful model in the 16th, of the 16th century house. Continue down the stairs into the cellar, originally accessed from the outside of the house. This is where food, beer and wine would have been stored in Tudor times. The house's Tudor foundations are visible at this level, and the eagle-eyed among us may be able to spot traces of the past imprinted in the bricks. After visiting the house in 2009, author Hilary Mantel wrote in an article for The Guardian, and I quote, It was when I saw the grass stalk, the dog's paw print, that I began to sense the spring of 1535, when Thomas More was still alive and pearls were still warm on the neck of Anne Boleyn. Such a great quote. Carry these images with you as you wander upstairs. The little chamber, possibly used as a bedroom by Sadler's wife, contains some exquisite 16th century panelling and leads into the great chamber. In this beautiful and spacious room, we can imagine Sadler entertaining important guests and banqueting by candlelight late into the night. Be sure to look behind the hinged panelling above the fireplace to see remnants of the original Tudor brickwork. At the far end of the room, a doorway leads into the Victorian study, the principal bedchamber in Tudor times. The still extant garderobe reminds us that this was once Sadler's private inner sanctum. Back on the ground floor, the Georgian parlour is home to some Tudor graffiti and the chapel is housed in what was once another cellar. Do not miss the Tudor kitchen, a space that would have been bustling almost around the clock with servants catering for Sadler's large family. He 
He and his wife had nine children, seven of which survived infancy. Finally, head out into the courtyard where the Tudor Knot Garden once stood and where you'll find a surviving Tudor window. The Wenlock Barn that now encloses the courtyard was constructed as a function room in 1904 on the site of the 16th century gardens. From a lesser known site to a world famous one. No Tudor pilgrimage is complete without a visit to the world famous Tower of London. Begun in the reign of William the Conqueror and largely completed in the reign of Edward I, this ancient fortress has stood sentinel over the city of London for more than 900 years. Throughout its long and often tumultuous history, it has served a range of purposes, namely those of fortress, royal palace, prison and execution site. However, it's also been home to an arsenal, royal mint, jewel house and menagerie. Today, it remains one of the city's most prominent and popular landmarks, welcoming well over 2 million visitors yearly, all eager to see the iconic yeoman warders, popularly known as Beefeaters, the ravens, legendary guardians of the tower and the dazzling crown jewels which have been on public display since the 17th century. The tower's darker side, which includes tales of uh, royal disappearances, murders, tortures, botched executions, and countless ghosts also draw in the crowds. For those of us in search of, of remnants of the tower's Tudor past, there is much to see, as we shall shortly explore. Each of the Tudor monarchs rode in procession from the tower to Westminster for their coronations, and many prominent personalities of the day, including Thomas More, Anne Boleyn, George Boleyn, Thomas Cromwell, Catherine Howard, Thomas Seymour and Lady Jane Grey spent their final hours within its shadow before facing execution within the tower itself or on Tower Hill. Their mortal remains later unceremoniously buried in the chapel of St Peter Vincula where they remain until this day. To see it, said the sculptor and writer Lord Ronald Sutherland Gower, is to conjure up a vision of scenes, some brilliant and stately, some tragic and awful, but all full of deepest interest. An apt description of a place of such intriguing contrasts, and one that has witnessed the gamut of human emotions from elation to utter despair. Let us now explore some of these sites. Sir Thomas's Tower, built by Edward I between 1275 and 1279 to supplement the tower's royal accommodation, is one of a group of buildings known today as the Medieval Palace. The Watergate, built at the same time, provided a new river entrance to the tower and is today known as Traitor's Gate because of the many prisoners accused of treason who are said to have passed under it. The buildings that make up the Medieval Palace were refurbished in 1532 in preparation for Anne Boleyn's coronation, which took place in the summer of 1533. St Thomas's Tower was restored to provide accommodation for, for William Sandys and John de Vere, the 15th Earl of Oxford, Henry VIII's Lord Chamberlain and Lord Chamberlain respectively, who were in charge of organising the lavish coronation ceremonies. If you look up in this room, it's still possible to see the enormous beams installed by Henry's master carpenter, James Needham, to fortify the roof in order to withstand the weight of the ceremonial guns that would be fired to mark Anne's arrival at the tower. Actually, over a thousand cannon were fired to mark her arrival, hence the need for the sturdy roof. On the south wall walk, pause about halfway between the Wakefield Tower and the Lanthorn Tower, reconstructed in the late 19th century after being destroyed by fire. Turn away from the iconic 19th century Tower Bridge and look towards the open grass in front of the White Tower. This space, as depicted on the information board, once contained many buildings, including the King's Great Hall, where Anne and George Boleyn were tried separately on the 15th of May, 1536, and the Queen's Lodgings, a lavish suite of rooms custom-built for Anne. In these new sumptuous apartments, Anne would spend the two nights prior to her coronation in joyful celebration, secure in her position by Henry's side and with her royal baby in her belly. In a tragic twist of fate, these same rooms would bear witness to her imprisonment from Tuesday the 2nd of May to Friday the 19th of May 1536. In these, her darkest and final days, she must have thought back to those happier times and wondered how and why it had all gone so terribly wrong. Less than six years later, in February 1542, Anne's young cousin, Catherine Howard, would spend her last wretched days in the same beautiful apartments. According to Eustace Chapuis, Catherine requested that the block be brought to her so, and this is a quote, that she might know how to place herself. 
When exiting the Lanthorn Tower, look toward the river. The building that stands virtually opposite is the Cradle Tower, from where prisoners John Gerard and John Arden managed to escape in 1599. It is open to the public and can be accessed via Water Lane. As already mentioned, the tower was used as a prison in the 16th century, and many of those incarcerated left behind some marvellous graffiti. In the Salt Tower, look out for an intricate astrological sphere carved by Hugh Draper, an innkeeper from Bristol who was accused of sorcery, and then in the Broad Arrow Tower, keep an eye out for a carving believed to have been made by Giovanni Battista Castiglioni, Princess Elizabeth's Italian Tudor, who was incarcerated by Mary I in 1556. Straight ahead of you as you enter the Martin Tower is a carving that reads Bullen, traditionally said to have been left by George Bullen, who may have been imprisoned here. Continuing along the North Wall Walk, the Brick Tower is home to a Royal Beasts exhibition about the wild and exotic animals that were kept at the tower from the 12th to the 19th century. The Boyer Tower is where... According to legend, George Duke of Clarence, brother of Edward IV and Richard III, was imprisoned in 1477 and eventually died. The circumstances of George's death are shrouded in mystery. Some sources say he was secretly beheaded. Others suggest he was killed by his younger brother, younger brother Richard. But the most popular story is that he was drowned in a barrel of Malmsey, which is sweet wine imported from Greece. A legend that's perpetuated by William Shakespeare in his play Richard III. While it may sound like pure fiction, a portrait housed in the National Portrait Gallery may offer some supporting evidence. The portrait depicts an unknown noblewoman who, around her wrist, wears a bracelet with a small barrel charm. Why is this significant? Because the sitter is believed to be Margaret Pole, Countess of Salisbury, daughter of George, Duke of Clarence and Isabel Neville. Is this then uh, an allusion to her father's unconventional death? While certainly interesting, it does not provide conclusive evidence because the identity of the sitter is uncertain. Like her father, the Countess of Salisbury, who'd been a close companion of Catherine of Aragon, met a truly grisly end. On the morning of 27th of May 1541, after having spent two long years imprisoned as a traitor at the Tower, 67-year-old Margaret was beheaded in a private execution by an inexperienced headsman. The pitiful and cruel death sent shockwaves through the Tudor court. If Henry VIII could order the death of a frail old lady, his eldest daughter's own godmother, and feel no remorse, then surely no one was safe. She's buried in the chapel of St Peter at Vincula alongside many other Tudors, including bishops, queens and dukes. The first floor cell of the Beecham Tower is home to a sea of Tudor graffiti, including a carving of what appears to be Anne Boleyn's falcon badge minus its crown and scepter. The majestic bird stands bare, stripped of its royal regalia like its mistress stood in the dying days of spring 1536. It's possible that this poignant symbol was etched by one of the men arrested alongside Anne on account of its, uh, sorry, as the Beecham Tower was the perfect place to house high-ranking prisoners on account of it being very close to the home of the constable of the tower and his deputy. These were the lieutenant's lodgings, and the buildings once stood on the site of the present-day Queen's House. Nearby, the name Jane is roughly carved into the stonework, perhaps the work of Lady Jane Grey's husband, and um, Guildford Dudley, who was imprisoned at the Tower in 1553-54, along with his father and brothers. A striking and beautiful memorial to the Dudley family can be found to the right of the fireplace, their family crest intricately carved into the wall. The Bloody Tower's name is based on one of the greatest mysteries of the Tower of London, the disappearance and alleged murders of the, son of the sons of Edward IV, popularly known as the Princes in the Tower. It was during the Tudor reign that the building, originally known as the Garden Tower, acquired its more sinister name because it was believed to have been where Edward's two blonde boys had their lives snuffed out. After the death of their father, 12-year-old Edward V and his nine-year-old brother, Richard of Shrewsbury, Duke of York, were living at the tower under the protection of their uncle, Richard, Duke of Gloucester, while preparations were underway for young Edward's coronation. As it turned out, Edward was never crowned, and on the 6th of July, 1483, his uncle Richard was crowned instead. The princes remained lodged at the tower for a short time before simply disappearing. Many, including Sir Thomas More, believed that Richard III had ordered the death of his nephews, 
However, it has never been conclusively proven. In 1674, the bones of two children were found buried near the White Tower and reinterred in Westminster Abbey as the remains of the princes, but they have never been forensically tested, leaving their identity open to speculation. Like the Beecham Tower, the Bloody Tower was also used to house high-ranking prisoners, including uh, Thomas Cranmer, who was imprisoned there before being taken to Oxford, where he was burnt at the stake in 1556. Today, the tower is furnished as it may have appeared during the extended imprisonment of Sir Walter Raleigh, charged with treason for his involvement in a conspiracy against James I. The imposing White Tower, begun during the reign of William the Conqueror, is the oldest medieval building at the Tower of London and has much to offer the Tudor enthusiast, including a wonderful exhibition from the collection of the Royal Armouries. Some of the highlights include armour made for Henry VIII in 1515, beautifully engraved with the entwined initials of Henry and Catherine of Aragon, Tudor roses and pomegranates. Henry was around 24 years old at the time, and judging by the size of the armour, which measures 106 centimetres around the chest and 88 centimetres at the waist, was in fine physical shape. Compare this to Henry VIII's field and tournament armour, made in Greenwich in 1540. The then 49-year-old ailing king required armour that measured 138 centimetres around the chest and 129 and a half at the waist, a far cry from his former athletic self. Before leaving the White Tower, be sure to visit the Norman Chapel of St John the Evangelist, a beautiful and rare survival. Now to the scaffold site in the Chapel of St, the Chapel Royal of St Peter Advincula. In front of the Chapel of St Peter Advincula stands an evocative circular memorial to the people who were executed inside the tower, including five Tudor women, all beheaded for treason, Anne Boleyn, Margaret Pole, Catherine Howard, Jane Boleyn and Lady Jane Grey. Designed by Brian Catling and unveiled in 2006, the, memorials, the memorial bears the names of those executed and a beautiful poem. Gentle visitor, pause a while. Where you stand, death cut away the light of many days. Here, jeweled names were broken from the vivid thread of life. May they rest in peace while we walk the generations around their strife and courage under these restless skies. A touching tribute, however, it does not mark the original side of the scaffold which stood on the north side of the White Tower, close to the entrance of the Waterloo Barracks and Crown Jewels exhibition. Baron Waldstein noted four scaffolds in the area on his visit to the tower. Visited the castle by the Thames. It is usually called the Tower of London. It is defended with several moats encircled by triple walls, and inside it is so full of houses that it gives visitors the impression of a town. A large open space in front of the tower, that is the White Tower, contains four scaffolds, and here a number of dukes, earls, and others have been executed for treason. So when you stand facing the White Tower today, with your back to the Waterloo Barracks, and there, there before you, virtually unchanged, is the last thing those condemned to die within the tower saw. It's natural now to want to visit the final resting place of the people that perished here, all of whom are buried in the Chapel Royal of St Peter at Vincula, alongside many of those who met their end in public executions on Tower Hill. While Anne and George Boleyn, Lady Rochford, Catherine Howard and Margaret Pole were buried in the church's chancel, others including Norris, Weston, Brereton, Smeaton, the men charged alongside Anne Boleyn were laid to rest in the adjacent churchyard, where the Waterloo Barracks now stands. Um, join the Yeoman Waters tour to access the chapel or visit it in the last hour of normal opening time when the public is permitted access. This is a moving and contemplative way in which to end your visit to the tower. As you make your way to the main exit, take note of the bell tower, which is not currently open to the public, where Thomas More and the poet Thomas White were once imprisoned, and later in the century, the Princess Elizabeth II. According to tradition, White witnessed the execution of his friends, Berlin, Norris, Weston, Brereton, and Smeaton, from his prison cell, inspiring him to write a poem reflecting on the precarious nature of court life and the reversal of fortune so often experienced by those closest to the king. He ends each verse with the Latin phrase that can be translated as thunder rolls around the throne. Outside the tower precinct are two points of Tudor interest. The first is the Queen's Stairs, found opposite the drawbridge that leads to the Byward Postern Gate. This is one of three riverside entrances to the tower and one often used by royalty in the 16th century, 
It's here that we can imagine the Tudor kings and queens arriving in all their finery. The second is the scaffold, scaffold site on Tower Hill in what is now Trinity Square Gardens, where around 125 people died in public executions. These grisly affairs drew in large crowds of spectators, often accommodated in special viewing galleries erected around the scaffold. As Lord Ronald Sutherland Gower said, I quote, every part of the Tower of London is pregnant with history and tradition, end quote. Pregnant with the memories of those cataclysmic events which seem to linger and envelop you as you walk its ancient historic grounds. Finally, let's travel to the Victoria and Albert Museum in London. The V&A is the world's leading museum of art and design, its vast collection unrivaled in its richness and diversity. It's home to some extraordinary objects from around the world, including furniture, fashion, jewellery, sculptures, textiles, ceramics and paintings. Each year, several million people walk through its doors to see the 60,000 or so items on permanent display including a remarkable collection of treasures from the medieval and renaissance period. With 146 rooms arranged across six levels, I recommend obtaining a map on arrival and locating the medieval and renaissance and Britain galleries, which are on level zero, one and two, where you'll find many tantalizing Tudor treasures. A definite standout and one of the largest objects in the museum is the timber facade of a house constructed in 1600 on Bishopsgate Street for Sir Paul Pinder, a wealthy English merchant and diplomat. Most timber frame houses in London were destroyed in the Great Fire of 1666, and so this is a rare and wonderful relic. Among the many other highlights is a fountain attributed to the Florentine sculptor Benedetto de Robezzano, which once stood in the great court of Cowdery House in Sussex, largely destroyed by fire in 1793 and a beautiful walnut writing box made in about 1525 and decorated with the royal arms of Henry VIII and Catherine of Aragon. Nearby is a portrait of Henry VIII and a portrait bust of his father, Henry VII, made by the Florentine sculptor Pietro Torrigani between 1509 and 1511. The bust is based on Henry VII's death mask and so is presumably, presumably a good likeness of the first Tudor monarch. Keep an eye out for fragments of a terracotta relief that once decorated Suffolk Place in Suffolk, the London home of Charles Brandon, Duke of Suffolk. A miniature portrait of Anne of Cleves painted by Hans Holbein in 1539 and a miniature whistle pendant shaped like a pistol which houses cosmetic tools in the stock and according to legend was the first of many gifts by Henry VIII to Anne Boleyn. Further on in the gallery is a tapestry that was made in around 1585 which bears the arms of Robert Dudley, Earl of Leicester, who is believed to have commissioned it for his London home, Leicester House. And there's also an enormous bed known as the Great Bed of Ware that dates back to at least 1596. This is one of the museum's most popular objects on account of its great size. The four-poster bed is over three metres wide and can reputedly, reputedly accommodate eight people. It was probably made in the 1590s for an inn at Ware in Hertfordshire and quickly became famous. Shakespeare referred to it in his play Twelfth Night, obviously confident that his readers would understand the reference. Do not miss Nicholas Hilliard's miniature portraits of Elizabeth I, Mary Queen of Scots, Robert Dudley and Sir Christopher Hatton, as well as a portrait of Mary Queen of Scots aged around 17, painted by a follower of Francois Clouet. Also associated with the Scottish Queen are a number of panels which Mary is said to have embroidered with Elizabeth Talbot, the Countess of Shrewsbury, better known as Bess of Hardwick during her imprisonment. Finally, look out for the Hunsdon jewels, which according to tradition, Elizabeth I gave to her cousin, Henry Carey, first Baron Hunsdon, the son of Elizabeth's maternal aunt, Mary Boleyn. Also a set of virginals decorated with the royal coat of arms and Anne Boleyn's falcon badge. The late Professor Eric Ives believed it was possible that the virginals may have belonged to Elizabeth, sorry, may have belonged to Anne before her daughter Elizabeth acquired them. To wander through the many galleries and to stand a few inches away from objects that the Tudors would have seen, held and worn is truly a stirring experience and one that greatly strengthens our connection with them. 
They cease to be just names in history books and instead become very real, very human. Thank you so much for joining me. I hope you enjoy the rest of the Tudor Summit and please remember to leave a comment to go into the draw to win either the Tudor London Guide, Discovering Tudor London, I know it's back to front, sorry, or the colouring book, Colouring History, The Tudors, one of those two. So leave a comment saying um, which book you'd like to win and why. And thank you again. Good luck. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM.